Hey, everybody. It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today, for the love of music, we'll be talking with the directors of two new films, both of which are about musicians and their passion for their craft, and both of which are selections at this year's Pacific Rim Film Festival going on in Santa Cruz right now. In the first part of today's show, Jake Shimabukuro, Life on Four Strings. It's about the career and artistry of a spectacular ukulele player. And then in part two, Mariachi Gringo, the story of an American whose life is changed by the music of Mexico. That is just ahead. Stick around. All right. Part one of our show, Jake Shimabukuro, Life on Four Strings. That is the name of a new documentary about the Horowitz, or maybe the Hendrix, of the ukulele. And uh, we're going to start off here with a little scene from the film. This is Jake Shimabukuro talking to a group of California school kids. Traditionally, the ukulele has been known to play, you know, you play Hawaiian music with it, which sounds kind of like this. But you can play more than just Hawaiian music with the ukulele. You can play blues. You can play rock and roll. You can play classical music. And you know, now that I, because I play the ukulele, I get to travel all around the world. I've been to places like Japan, Australia, Canada. Yes, I've even been to San Diego. I've been playing the ukulele since I was four years old. Four years old. That's right. That's 10 years ago. Actually, it was a little more than 10 years ago, but not so long considering all that Jake Shimabukuro has done in his still young career. In the last decade or so, he's become an international superstar, and he's helped to lead something of a ukulele renaissance expanding the possibilities of the little instrument way beyond what people thought it could do. The new documentary about Jake is a portrait of an artist seemingly at one with his art. It's hard to tell where Jake leaves off and the music begins. The director of the film is Tad Nakamura, who we'll be hearing from in the next half hour. Tad, like Jake Shimabukuro, is a Japanese-American, and he says he was inspired not only by Jake's musicianship, but also by their shared heritage. Growing up, as Asian American, we never see ourselves in the media as much as we'd like, you know, or especially that doesn't reflect our everyday lives. You know, we go to uh, community events, we go to school, we go to family events, and we see Asians all the time. But um, on the mainstream media, you know, on the radio, on television screen, or even the movie screen, uh, we don't see people who look like ourselves. And so um, someone like Jake, I think, is, is very fascinating, too, because uh, like someone who saw the film told me that it's rare that you see an Asian American who's limitless. Someone, you know, that can be on Conan O'Brien, that could play for the Queen of England, but also knows people in my own family and, and you know, especially in Hawaii, is just considered, um, you know, a hometown hero and people can just say hi to him on the street. Mm-hmm. So definitely being, being Asian American uh, was part of the story that I was attracted to. And I, and I know that, you know, not only pe- everyone around the world, but I think specifically Asians or Asian Americans can really get inspiration from his story. Um, he grew up in Hawaii, and uh, I, I've read that he's like fifth generation um, Japanese American. Is that right? Yeah, Jake is fifth generation Japanese American, and I'm fourth generation Japanese American. You're fourth generation, which means you're great grandparents immigrated from Japan to the U.S., and in Jake's case, it was his great-great-grandparents who must have come over in in the 1800s. Yeah, especially here in Hawaii, um, because of the workforce during the plantations, um, you know, there's Asian-Americans of of all all kinds are are here for, yeah, for multiple generations that go way back. Um, He is, Jake Shimabukuro is this you know, unbelievable virtuoso. He can, he can play anything. You show him playing all kinds of styles. I just thought I'd feature a little clip from your film of him playing what sounds like flamenco guitar, but on ukulele. 
Let's listen to that. Jake Shimabukuro from your movie, Tad, playing flamenco style there on ukulele, which I wouldn't have even thought was possible. That's that's the amazing part is that he'll pick up any kind of genre, and you know whether it's jazz, whether it's rock, whether it's flamenco, it's pretty amazing what he can do. And again, hearing it is one thing, but then seeing it and realizing that it's only four strings on a ukulele <laughs> Is, is even more impressive. <laughs> I, I noticed that you pronounced it the, the traditional Hawaiian way, ukulele, uh, whereas Jake in the film goes back and forth between that and the kind of you know common American pronunciation, ukulele. He does it both ways, I guess depending maybe on the audience he's talking to. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like his last name, right? Right, right, which uh, can be pronounced in the more traditional Japanese way, shimabukuro, as you explained to me before the interview started, or the way that most people pronounce it here in the U.S., uh, shimabukuro. Um, let's hear a couple more examples of his stylistic range. This is Jake playing a little Bach. That's off his live album, uh, Jake Shimabukuro Live. Uh, And here he is playing um, a jazz standard, Chick Corea's Spain. And that's just really a small taste of the range. He can play hard rock. He can play traditional Hawaiian, really just about anything imaginable. Do you have a sense of how he got that good? Um, Your movie says that it's his mom who first taught him, but then maybe I missed it, but I didn't hear about any other mentors. It it seems like he almost taught himself. Well, no, he actually, um, in terms of, you know, technical training, he has uh, and does uh, dedicate, you know, his skill to uh, a handful of different teachers here in Hawaii. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, But, you know, I think Jake really does love that instrument. And um, in a way, you know, it's his security blanket. In a way, it's his best friend. Um, In a way, it is his first love. So, uh, you know, especially, you know, having hung out with him, like literally – you know, driving when we're on tour, whenever there's traffic, he'll just pull out his ukulele in the car and and, and start strumming. Um, I mean, anytime there's any downtime, you would think someone who performs and records as their livelihood would want to take a break once in a while, but really he has that thing in his hand all the time. <laughs> and so I think, it, it, like he says in the film, it really wasn't practice. It was just his way to calm himself down his way to kind of make himself feel comfortable. And again, it's always something that's familiar with him no matter where he is in the world. So um, it wasn't as much practice as that. He just loved playing so much and um, through that, you know, spent an immense time with with the instrument. You said he had a number of teachers, but my impression is that he has invented techniques that nobody else was using on the ukulele, that that there really were no precedents for some of the things that he's now doing. Yeah, no, definitely. And those are, you know, I think he's just a fan of music, too. And so through his career, he's been able to, you know, play with people like Bela Fleck, 
and, you know, meet people like Yo-Yo Ma. And, you know, he asks them questions and he'll pick, you know, tips of, of just really different um, techniques and he'll incorporate that into, you know, his approach with the four strings on the ukulele. Um, and, you know, another thing that a lot of people, I mean, I never didn't really realize it myself, is that when he covers these songs, um, none of these songs have been um, arranged for the ukulele. So he actually arranges, you know, by ear, arranges all these songs. For example, like Queen's uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, you know, his ability to arrange that that song that, you know, has multiple different instruments and different layers and people He's able to, again, with four strings and two hands, really do an a impressive job of mimicking um, you know, all the different elements of the song. Yeah, yeah. And does he write some of his own? Yeah. You know, he's just a great composer as well. Did he write Blue Roses Falling? Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, of course, the great thing with Jake is that every song has a story behind it. So, um, actually, I uh, really like that song specifically because on one hand it sounds kind of light and happy but at the same time uh, it has almost a sorrow to it and the reason he actually wrote that for his friend's grandmother who was very ill in the hospital and um, because of the various medication uh, she was on she would have hallucinations and one of the hallucinations was that um, there were these uh, blue rose petals falling from the ceiling and um, that was again one of the stories that really stuck with me. And actually, for me, uh, in the process of making this film, I lost my grandmother uh, earlier in February. And so, um, uh, actually, that that song kind of is very personal to me because it kind of reminds me of of my own grandmother. Wow. You know, I wanted to play the song, and I was going to ask you where the pathos came from in that song, because I I knew nothing about it, but it, it almost chokes me up to listen to it. Let's hear just a little excerpt of it. So that's um, Blue Roses Falling by Jake Shimabukuro on ukulele from, again, Jake Shimabukuro Live. Beautiful, beautiful song. I think you use it under the closing credits, is that right? Yeah, and actually uh, there's also him playing it live uh, on the dock uh, here in Hawaii Kai. Um, (laughs) And that's when he's talking about actually his his childhood and growing up uh, as a kid. So we've talked about his technical virtuosity, his flash. He can play extremely fast. And when he was younger, this tends to be the case with younger musicians, when he was out to sort of, um, you know, set the world on fire, he played fast all the time. But he has this incredibly sensitive side. And um, a lot of the music you picked for the film is the more intimate music, Mm -hmm. including this song. 
And you, you did use the music, as you say, uh, when he described his childhood, which was kind of lonely, it sounds like. Um, his parents divorced. He and his brother were raised by his mom. So a bit lonely and a lot of time with the ukulele, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, again, um, I think uh, it filled the void for Jake throughout his life. You spent a lot of time with him. Yeah, we pretty much uh, were shooting on and off for about two and a half years. And you know, he's so busy that he literally is on the road 10 months out of the year. So our budget couldn't afford to follow him, you know, the whole time. But uh, we actually went on tour with him twice to Japan, uh, went on a tour with him in New York, uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and then, of course, um, was able to come out to Hawaii to shoot with him at home. So in some of these scenes, as you say, he's, he's always got the ukulele. Uh, he was playing really, uh, in some cases, I guess, for you and your pretty small crew. So you were just having like a private recital almost. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, it was, it was, he's a great person to have in the car. Hmm. Um, I'd like to play another clip from your film. And this is uh, Jake Shimabukuro talking about the sound he was getting out of the ukulele during his uh, younger days when he was using a lot of effects and making it sound like an electric guitar. I wanted to, you know, take a lick like... You know, and, uh, and really make it sing. So the first two songs that I wrote for the my very first solo CD was written on an electric guitar. So we heard Jake talking about how he, at one point, really wanted to uh, get that electric guitar sound. And in fact, he did uh, what we heard almost sounded like, a, I don't know, a Stratocaster or something like that. Mm-hmm. But then he started developing techniques for getting sounds without any effects box, without any distortion pedals or anything. Um, and the degree to which he's been able to do that is um, apparent in this next song I'm going to play. So that was Jake Shimabukuro playing, a, you know, a classic of Japanese traditional music, Sakura Sakura, sometimes translated as cherry blossoms, um, in a way that sounds just like the koto, which is like a 13-stringed zither, nothing like a ukulele. Yeah. When my um, dad first heard Jake perform live, that was the one thing that blew his mind because, you know, he knows what the koto looks like and he knows how intricate the koto is. And again, to be translated to a four-string instrument um, that's a fifth of, of the size uh, blew my dad away. <laughs> yeah, well, it knocked me out, too. Amazing, because they are such different instruments. Um, speaking of Japan, you feature Jake's manager, Kaz. Is that her nickname, Kaz? Yeah. Kaz, Kaz. Flanagan. 
She's actually Japanese by birth. I guess Flanagan is her married name. That's my guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and she's his manager and close friend and like almost like a big sister. Um, they have a really, really strong relationship. And when you first introduce her, she mentions that she's from Sendai, Japan, which a lot of people will recognize the name because Sendai was partially destroyed in the tsunami last year. But when she mentions it, I had the impression that the tsunami hadn't yet happened. And then was it during your filmmaking that it actually happened? Yeah, we started shooting in early 2010. And so um, when the tsunami happened, we were kind of almost in the middle of filming. And actually, in a real eerie way, I was actually talking to Jake on the phone uh, about a couple hours before, uh, you know, I, I was in Los Angeles and Jake was in Hawaii. Uh, so it was a couple hours our time before the, the tsunami hit. You know, I think for most people to be able to, to witness some devastation live on the Internet or on television, uh, you know, was, was real horrific. And then to realize that um, not only was caused from that city, but, you know, Jake on all his tours, um, every tour he performs in Sendai. So he actually has a very, very intimate and close relationship with that community. So, you know, when that happened, it was it was very devastating, you know, like everyone in the world, but especially for Jake and Cod because of their personal connections to those people. And you went with them and filmed them visiting Sendai after the, the tsunami, Kaz seeing her hometown devastated and um and jake performing there right yeah uh-huh so i'd like to actually play another uh clip from your movie and this is jake shimabukuro performing for some seniors i guess somewhere near sendai mm-hmm stage all I'm trying to do and all I want to do is just connect with people and I want to be as sensitive as possible so that I can feel what they're feeling music communicates the purest form you know of, of human emotion believe that you know to a certain extent but then you know you come across an experience like Sendai you know they still have no home they have to somehow still support their family you know for me I'm, I'm on the next plane to Hawaii and going home you know to my family and you know I think that was a real eye-opener for me so we heard Jake Shimabukuro there talking about um, connecting with audiences, about the power of music, and what's being shown there is him performing to these older folks in Japan um, who survived the quake and the tsunami, but who probably have suffered a lot. And uh, it's a pretty intensely moving scene, I gotta say. Yeah, no, it was it was one of those situations that you know you get to really feel the connection that other people are having with his music, and it makes. Um, you know, your appreciation for him as an artist, um, but also, too, you know, just being there uh, in Sendai really made the news and the tragedy much more real. Because uh, for me, being Japanese-American, 
uh, that was one of the few times that I actually felt a personal connection to the people there just because, you know, the people at that home look like my grandmother, look like my aunts and uncles. Uh, whereas, you know, when you're in kind of downtown Tokyo, it, it's totally such another world and foreign to me growing up in Los Angeles. But that, at that moment, that's when I really felt a much deeper connection to, um, to the people who survived and who are currently kind of suffering through uh, the aftermath of the tsunami. It must have been gut-wrenching to see it close up. It was bad enough watching it on television and on the Internet. Yeah, yeah. Um, at this point, Jake is a superstar. He tours, as you say, the world constantly. He collaborates with top musicians in a lot of different categories, from classical to, to jazz and rock. Um, what has been his impact on his instrument, on, you know, the perception of the instrument, on people taking up the instrument? Has he sort of helped spark a ukulele revolution? Well, yeah, I think there in the last five years, especially, there's, you know, the ukulele has had this big comeback. Um, not only people around the world, but, you know, young kids uh, in the States are picking it up. I, you know, I definitely think Jake has a big part of that. Um, I think, if again, if you hear him play, all of a sudden the range of songs you want to play it grows. Because I think, you know, it's like, kind of like someone who's forcing you to play the piano. Um, you know, someone starts you off with a classical song. You know, that's, that might be more of a chore than anything else. But once you know you can play your favorite song on the radio, you know, that's a whole other, um, whole other aspect. So I think someone like Jake, uh, you know, for, for example, um, you know, we'll be hanging out and Jake has played Lady Gaga for me um, or he'll cover Adele. Um, and, or my favorite <laughs> is that, you know, he'll riff uh, Michael Jackson. And, you know, something like that right. for a younger person to hear uh, all of a sudden totally changes the potential of that instrument. And I also think... Um, you know, the fact that it is small, it is relatively inexpensive, you know, versus even something like a guitar. Uh, it's portable, and Jake says it's the easiest instrument to play, but at the same time, no one's going to play like he does, and he <laughs> makes it look very, very easy. Well, they say that when some prominent rockers first heard Jimi Hendrix, some of them said, I give up. There's no way <laughs> I could ever play like that. Uh, on the other hand, he inspired millions, of course, too, so... I wonder if Jake has that combined effect. Some people are saying, forget it. <laughs> I'll never yeah. be able to be that good, you know? Yeah. Um, he seems very humble. Do you think any of this will ever go to his head? No, no. I mean, uh, Casey Kamaka of Kamaka Ukuleles, the, the guy who engineers and crafts all of Jake's ukuleles, one of the best lines that he had told me was that, you know, he thinks that Jake doesn't even realize how big he is. And um, I think that's very true because talk about, you know, just a sincere, humble guy. I mean, literally, we, we showed the film uh, at the historic Hawaii Theater on Tuesday night. And, uh, you know, this was for a crowd of about 1,100 people. And he's introducing himself, you know, by name to the stage crew, to, um, you know, all the people, all the staff workers at the theater. And after his performance, he made sure to go up to every single one of them, remember their names, gave them a big hug. You know, little things like that, um, really, you can't fake. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you said uh, you just premiered your documentary in Hawaii just a couple nights ago. What was that like? It was, it was amazing because I think one of the themes in the film, uh, besides Jake and besides his music, is family and the importance of family. And uh, especially, you know, being an Asian American uh, and him being from Hawaii, uh, family is, is always going to be a top priority and always going to be central to everyone's identity. So uh, what was great was that his whole family was there in the theater, and actually my parents uh, were able to come out from Los Angeles, and also the producer... Don Young, his whole family came out from San Francisco, including his wife and, and little daughter. So, you know, it, it was a, it was on one hand, it was this great premiere of a film, but on the other hand, it felt very intimate and very personal because you know everyone's family was there, kind of, and able to to share what we've been working on for the last two and a half years with everyone. Do you play an instrument? No, I am the worst musically inclined person. <laughs> Um, that's why I make films that I could just uh, play other people's 
work. I'm a big music fan, actually, uh, but I cannot carry a beat to save my life. <laughs> um, Jake is how old now? 35. 35. And he's already done so many different things. Um, do you see him evolving in, in new directions? With Jake, you never know what's going to happen, but you know he's always going to continue pushing the envelope and also just pushing himself creatively. You know, for his last album uh, was actually produced by the legendary um, Alan Parsons. And, you know, he was just explaining to me there, just working with someone of that caliber really forced him to step up his game. Uh, and, you know, they actually recorded with a huge symphony in the studio. So little things like that will wow. continue to to really push himself. He continues to really work on all different types of approaches to, to the instrument. Well, thank you so much, Tad. Oh, thank you. Yeah, this is great. Tad Nakamura is director of Jake Shimabukuro, Life on Four Strings. As we heard, Jake Shimabukuro has opened the world's eyes to the potential of the often underestimated ukulele. And the next film we're going to be discussing focuses on another form of music that has sometimes been ignored or looked down on by the mainstream in the U.S. The movie is called Mariachi Gringo, and it's getting its local premiere at the Pacific Rim Film Festival this coming Wednesday, October 24th. Mariachi Gringo is about a white kid from the Midwest who falls in love with Mexican music and travels to the city of Guadalajara, hoping to become a real mariachi himself. I spoke with the director, Tom Gustafson. Tom, this is a story of a young man in Kansas, right, who longs for, for something different? Yeah, I mean, he's really kind of realized that, his, that he's in a dead-end life. Um, he's kind of sick of the boredom in Kansas, so he's kind of looking for something new. Now, if memory serves, this is not the first Get Out of Kansas story that's ever been made into a movie. Were you thinking in any way whatsoever of that other movie? Uh, you know, it's funny because uh, somebody at, at a film festival recently asked that question. And, you know, Corey, the screenwriter, my partner, um, you know, there is a, a little line in About the film. a tornado. That, uh, yeah, that, <laughs> that does a little nod to why we put our lead in uh, Kansas, so... So, yes, The Wizard of Oz is there just there in spirit. There is, yeah. And it's definitely, I mean, I think, you know, if you look at it just in the big strokes, it's, uh, you know, he definitely goes to a place that's more colorful and <laughs> fantastical for him. So, Yeah, and yet this is not a wild fantasy. This is, um, in many ways, a realistic movie. And one of the things that's interesting to me is that, you know, we've all known a lot of people, maybe, we, maybe we've been that very person who longs to get out of the place we're growing up in and go to someplace more exotic. But usually more exotic means either a wild fantasy or someplace, you know, halfway around the world. It doesn't mean our next door neighbor, Mexico. A lot of Americans overlook Mexico, I think, and, and especially mariachi music, which I think Anglos, at least, think of as kind of kitschy and ho-hum. You guys chose that as your fantasy destination for this character. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, Corey and I first kind of fell in love with the country um, about 10 years ago when we were working on a film called Master and Commander, which was shot down in Rosarito. And, you know, we kind of had that same attitude. We didn't really know what, you know, Mexico was. And, you know, I, I got this job and it was going to be a year of my life. And I went down there and was kind of just blown away by the the culture and the people and the food and the music. You know, we used to go to this little bar in Ensenada, um, which had mariachis, you know, every weekend. And the entire bar would be singing along. And you, it was just such a great, amazing experience for us that it kind of stuck with us. And we always wanted to do a story that was set in Mexico. And this, this is what Corey, you know, was inspired by. And yeah. by the way, Corey, is Corey Crookenberg? Yeah, Corey Crookenberg. He's the writer and one of the producers and editor of Mariachi Gringo. So everything you're saying to me today applies to Corey too. Yeah, he and I, I mean, we, we are Speak Productions. We have been partners for 
you know, 15 years and yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned Master and Commander. So you were working on the Peter Ware film uh, with uh, Russell Crowe and others. Uh, that was a big deal film. It was a big deal film. And I worked with um, a good friend of mine, Santa Cruz native, uh, Judy Boulay, who was a casting director. And her and I um, did the casting on that film down in, down in Mexico. So she really, you know, introduced me to a whole new country that both Corey and I completely fell in love with. I was wondering if you had a Santa Cruz connection because one of the characters in Mariachi Gringo, uh, a Mexican woman who your hero meets, uh, longs to come back to the United States, Santa Cruz in particular, where she attended college. Why did you pick Santa Cruz? I mean, really it was because, you know, Corey and my relationship with, with Judy, who lived there for many years, she now does not live there, but we used to go and visit and it was always kind of a little magical place that we loved. And we knew that this, this character um, went to school somewhere in California. Um, we knew that she loved the ocean. We knew that she loved California. And, you know, Santa Cruz was the place that kind of popped into our head that would be the perfect place to, to put her in. So we've got two characters in this movie who are sort of longing for somewhere over the rainbow. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, did you relate to that personally? Did you have a place like that uh, that you dreamed of when you were growing up? And I have no idea where you grew up. Yeah, you know, both Corey and I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in a really small farm town outside of Chicago. And definitely, I mean, I think growing up, um, you know, I was the typical kind of bullied gay kid. <laughs> uh. And I knew that I was going to get out, you know, like I always knew that I was going to be okay because I was going to escape the small town. And I love, you know, I love the the town that I came from. I still have lots of family there, but I knew that I was going to go away from it and, and move to a bigger city. And um, so I think that has always been kind of stories that I like to tell about people that, that are looking for something new and, and trying to change their life and go in a different direction. Mm. You know, I said earlier that a lot of Americans, and I mean Anglo-Americans, I mean not uh, Latinos, overlook Mexico, you know, maybe identifying it as a source of immigrants, of poverty, uh, these days drug wars, but not as a place of a very, very different and fascinating culture and a place with fantastic music, like the music you highlight in your film. Was that on your mind, too, when you made this? Oh, yeah. I mean... You know, the one thing that I think I'm the most proud of with this movie is that, you know, our film really is a celebration of the country. And, you know, making the film was was really challenging uh, because every time we said to investors and producers and companies, um, at least in the U.S., that we were making a film about a guy who wants to go to Mexico, the reaction was always so negative, you know, and people were like, oh, why why would you want to shoot a film about Mexico? Why You can't go and shoot a film in Mexico. It's too dangerous. <laughs> and that that excited us, you know, that, that, that energy that, that was so negative, it was kind of, it made us confident that this story needed to be told. And, you know, we amazingly paired up with a company in, in Mexico city named Cincentito and they helped us and, and were the reason that this film got made. Um, and then every crew member that came on board, you know, crew and cast were excited that we were making a film that was positive uh, with the image of Mexico, because there's just so much negativity <laughs> surrounding it. And for those people who think mariachi music is sort of corny stuff that they hear in restaurants, I think you guys um, sort of put that idea to rest in the film. I wanted to play just a little bit of these absolutely kick-ass mariachis uh, that you have in a scene. They're, they're singing in a plaza outdoors. Um, and who are these guys? You know, we found a bunch of the mariachis, obviously, in Guadalajara. I mean, it's the birthplace of mariachi. And um, when we started scouting for the film, we went down there and we met with a bunch of different bands. Um, we also cast some mariachis out of Mexico City and did some recordings in a studio there where we prepped. The mariachi community in Guadalajara uh, was really uh, welcoming to us. You know, they invited us down to the big mariachi festival and we shot, you know, the real parade that happens and that was you know several months before we even started production on the film so we kind of got to see the you know the real mariachi community in guadalajara which was great let's listen uh, 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 
préstame tu claridad para seguirle los pasos a esa joven que hoy se va. Ay, Um, Tom, in that clip we just heard, some really fantastic mariachis. You guys worked with some of the best in this film, I guess, including a, a band called Mariachi Los Reyes de Mexico, which is based in Guadalajara, I believe. And, and their leader is very well known. His name is Francisco Javier Gonzalez, also um, has a nickname El Pilon. Tell me about uh, you know making that connection and exploring their music, which I, I think they're probably not used to American filmmakers coming down and doing that. Yeah, and especially with a film that's called Mariachi Gringo. I mean, I think the hurdle that we had to get over was making the mariachi community know that this film was not a joke. It was not. It was not making a mockery out of the music, you know. Um, and that was a very serious hurdle. I mean, there were a lot of mariachis that wrote back to us when we were when we were first starting kind of research on the project that you know, uh, we were insulting and, and then we'd have to be like, no, 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 that's not the movie we're making. We're not making the, you know, the comedy. We are making a, a movie that really respects the, the mariachis. And oh, that's interesting. So they're aware of these caricatures that we have in the U.S.? Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, especially when you say mariachi gringo, I mean, it, people think it's a comedy and people think that it's going to be, you know, a white guy making fun of mariachis, maybe. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> so, yeah, our film is not that. And luckily, the mariachi, mariachi community quickly realized that and, and embraced us. So, hmm. Your lead uh, is Sean Ashmore. And um, if I'm not mistaken, he really did learn some of this music. He did. You know, when I first met Sean, we had a meeting in L.A., kind of that typical, you know, casting meeting where... He sat down with me and he said, look, I do not consider myself a musician and I know zero Spanish. (laughs) And uh, I was like, you're hired. (laughs) Uh, It was really exciting because he wanted to dive into the world uh, very much like Edward does in the movie. And so we put him with a coach for about six months in L.A. And he just worked, you know, he worked his tail off and learned to play the vuela and learned all the mariachi songs on guitar and, you know, learned how to sing in Spanish. Um, and in the film, he does all of his own playing, all of his own singing. So it was, it was pretty amazing to watch, watch his process. Um, you just mentioned the instrument you have him playing in the movie, which is one that I don't think Americans have ever heard of, but it's a major part of mariachi music, the vuela. Mm-hmm. It's like a small five-string guitar. Exactly, yeah. And, and he learned to play. Just like he did. the character. Yeah, he did. And it's he has a good too. voice. We, there's a very kind of famous uh, mariachi instrument maker down in Guadalajara that we met, and they built the vuela for the for the film, and and then we actually shot in in his studio as well. So wow, that was exciting. Well, the the film includes not only the um, mariachi upstart, uh, the actor Sean Ashmore, but it includes a really well known performer, <laughs> Lila Downs, a uh, very famous Mexican singer. Um, how did you get her involved? Corey and I have been fans of hers for many, many years. And when Corey was thinking of the idea of this film and he started writing the you know first draft, he had Lila in mind for one of the characters. And so he wrote the role of Sophia you know, specifically for her. And as soon as we had that first draft, we you know, called up uh, her management and sent her the script. And within a couple of days, I was Skyping with her and she was on board. So she was the first person we had attached. And it was really exciting, obviously, for us. And it was just absolutely amazing to, you know, collaborate with her on this project. There's one scene I'd like to play a clip from near the end of the film. It's Leela Downs singing with some mariachis outdoors, surrounded by... Uh, you know, sort of villagers, I guess you could say. It's out in the countryside, and she's pouring her heart out.
negra, paloma negra, ¿dónde? ¿A dónde andarás? Ya no juegues con mi honra parrandera. Si tus caricias deben ser mías de nadie más y aunque te ame con locura ya no vuelvas paloma negra eres la reja de un penal quiero ser libre Beber mi vida con quien yo quiera. Dios, dame fuerzas que estoy muriendo por irla a buscar. Ya agarraste. Por tu cuenta La parra That was Lila Down singing Paloma Negra, a classic uh, of traditional Mexican music. And near the end, you can hear her emoting, you know, in her music. But near the end, she actually sheds a tear. <laughs> um, was, is, is that part of the act or does she just work herself into such a state, you know, that that happens? You know, we shot that. Uh, we shot the vocal live and we did one take. So what we did is we recorded the music in the studio a few weeks before, and then we got to this setting. We decided to do the close-up of Leela first, and we had an ear prompter, you know, earwig in, in her ear. And if you look really hard in the movie, you can see it. <laughs> and then Leela sang the vocal totally live. And by the time she was done, not only was she shedding a tear, but the entire crew was weeping. I mean, it was just so powerful and and moving. So I'm I'm really happy that we decided to capture that that moment live. Um, because there's something about, you know, doing that instead of just having her lip sync, <laughs> which uh, we're really glad that we did it the other way. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you if she got to you guys in the crew watching that. It was pretty spellbinding. For sure. And, you know, that's Leela is such an amazing performer. You know, her live shows are just so incredible. And we wanted to figure out how to capture that in the film. And we knew, you know, obviously some of the other songs that Leela performs in the film we couldn't capture live, but we knew that Paloma Negra was one that we could try to capture some of that, that energy that Leela has when she is doing live performance. And, you know, that we got that through her vocal. Leela Downs plays uh, this singer, obviously, in the movie. Um, also, she's kind of the lover of the girl we mentioned earlier, um, who becomes a friend of the lead character, Edward, a Mexican girl who's helping to run her family's restaurant in Guadalajara. And you have a scene where that character, Lilia, takes Edward to a gay and lesbian bar in Guadalajara. And it's not like some shadowy dive or secretive place. It's a thriving, jumping scene with a lot of people. Um, did you find scenes like that in Guadalajara? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny because people down in Mexico say that, you know, Guadalajara is kind of like the San Francisco of, of Oh, Mexico. is that right? Yeah, and it's it's got a very lively gay scene and that club that we shot at is a real club. It's, you know, a club that we've gone to numerous times. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a very active, lively, fun scene down in Guadalajara. Um, have you shown the film in Mexico? We have, we, we had our Mexican premiere at the Guadalajara film festival and we actually won best actress for Marta Higuereta, who plays Lilia 
and we won Best Film, which was very exciting. So it was very well received, huh? It was, yeah. And we invited a bunch of mariachis, and some of them came and played after the film and that were in the movie. Uh, we've also screened it there again at the Mariachi F- Festival this past August. So. so are you and Corey now heroes of the mariachi uh, world? <laughs> I wouldn't say that, but I, you know, I hope um, this film will keep having us come back to Guadalajara because I absolutely love that city. So as many times as they'll have us back, we will go. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Tom. Really enjoyed talking to you. And on behalf of mariachis and lovers of mariachi music everywhere, thank you again. Thank you. Thanks so much. Tom Gustafson is director of Mariachi Gringo, which screens this coming Wednesday, October 24th, led off by a live performance by Mariachi California de Javier Vargas. That's at 7 p.m. at the Rio Theater in Santa Cruz, part of the Pacific Rim Film Festival. And you can learn more about the festival at pacificrimfilmfestival.org. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I will return next week. You can always learn more about past shows and listen online at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com. Tienes voluntad